Hello. I'm really looking forward to this episode and introducing Amy Beatty to you. Amy is a mortgage broker and she's owner of Good Green Home Loans, which is a mortgage broking business that puts sustainability at the forefront of its lending decisions. This is part one of my conversation with Amy, and in it, she shares loads of helpful information about borrowing for your renovation or new build, and especially what you need to know when your site is more challenging or in a bushfire-prone area. So let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building, or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Welcome to season 12 of the Get It Right podcast called Rebuild and Build Better. This season includes a range of conversations with some fantastic experts and professionals, and we're diving into a range of topics related to rebuilding after bushfires, building or renovating in bushfire-prone areas, and more generally, designing and building more resilient homes. This season of the podcast has been inspired by one of our Undercover Architect course members who has over 20 years experience in disaster recovery and saw the need, given our recent summer bushfires in Australia, for a resource to help people rebuilding their homes after bushfire. He's been a great help to me in connecting me with information and people I can now share with you. You can see video versions of all of our interviews, as well as get a copy of the full transcripts, plus loads more helpful resources for your journey on the Undercover Architect website. Head to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild for all the info you need to rebuild and build better. Now let's get on with the episode. Let me tell you a little more about Amy and Good Green Home Loans. Good Green Home Loans is not your typical mortgage broking service. Good Green Home Loans is here to help you find the right home loan at a great rate using only environmentally responsible lenders who aren't using their profit and power to support the fossil fuel industry. Amy Beattie is a mortgage broker, however, she's not like most mortgage brokers I know. And when I first heard about her business, Good Green Home Loans, I was so excited that it not only existed, but that it was being driven by someone with such purpose and commitment to their mission that they were willing to build a business on it. It was during Amy's career spanning over 15 years in one of Australia's big banks that the idea for Good Green Home Loans came about. Amy had always thrived on the happiness that she'd felt helping people achieve their financial goals. But she wanted to do more and Amy wanted her workplace to have genuine purpose for her days to be filled with meaningful connections and to leave work each day feeling proud and smiling. As the years went by, she began to doubt if the financial services industry would satisfy her desire to have a positive impact on the world. However, as she researched other avenues and learnt more about her own choices and their impact on climate change, waste reduction and improving the environment, she discovered that the financial services industry remains a significant supporter and enabler of the production of fossil fuels, the number one source of human-produced carbon emissions responsible for global warming. Amy believes that Australia's largest corporations have a responsibility to be leaders when it comes to protecting the environment, and with their continued investment in the fossil fuel industry, they aren't there yet. The greatest way that we can encourage change? It's by moving our valuable business elsewhere, and this is where Good Green Home Loans can help. 
When you're about to set up a potentially decades-long relationship with a lender for one of the biggest investments in your life, Amy helps you not only achieve a great outcome for your mortgage, but vote with your dollar for a future that improves the environment, reduces your carbon footprint, and she also makes a donation on your behalf to a charity or not-for-profit organisation helping the environment as well. So let's hear more from Amy now. Well, Amy, it is fantastic to have you here. I'm so excited to be introducing you to the UA community and for us to be talking about what you do and your incredible wealth of knowledge around uh, this world and uh, being able to offer people insight into how they can get access to finance and the, the tricks around, I suppose, and the challenges to be aware of, but also knowing that there's options to seek financing for their home that is in more alignment with their values that they might have around the planet and lowering their environmental impact. And I just think it's going to be super exciting to be able to chat to you. So I wanted to dive in and just talk, I suppose, about that big picture business idea in terms of, do you find that because your business is focusing on lenders that don't support the fossil fuel industry, that when you're helping homeowners, that it can be tricky to be competitive with what kind of packages I suppose you can offer them for their finance and whether they're limited then I suppose in their access of uh, who you know it's that thing of do I go with my values or do I go with the lower cost option this is a big long-term commitment is it going to say you know all that kind of stuff do you find that that's difficult? The short answer to the question is definitely no it's it's not at all hard to remain competitive on price And I have coverage of a large enough sort of panel of lenders that despite the differences between them all, and there's big differences between them all, no matter which broker you you go to see in terms of their policies and their rules and what they will and won't finance, that, you know, having, having around 20 banks to choose from gives me more than enough coverage of the little different niches that sometimes you're presented as a mortgage broker. So, so no, the short answer is definitely not. Um, the elephant in the room at the beginning of every meeting um, with a new client for me is the price factor. I guess when you're making a sustainable choice in most things in life, it's almost guaranteed it will be more expensive. But there are some things that that's just not the case and a home loan is definitely one of them. So, yeah, I think uh, most people assume they're going to get something a little bit more expensive but the reality is that a home loan is ultimately over its lifetime, which is, you know, 20 or 30 years sometimes, it's a variable cost. And that means you just have to be vigilant to not just assume that the price you got back 20 years ago is still great. And yeah, the ethical banks are as competitive, sometimes more competitive and depending on the day of the week, I guess, because they change daily. But no, you, you, you aren't compromising anything. And, and to be honest, with some really um, complex scenarios that I've come across, I've, I've sometimes felt as if I might have to say to the client, look, I think we're going to have to go down the path of a big bank and I'll, send, I'll, I'll recommend someone who will do that because I, I won't. But it's never ended up being the case. So, yeah, it's, it, it, the coverage is good on all levels. That's so exciting to know because it is that thing I, I often hear from members of my community that they've suggested to somebody that they want to make a sustainable choice and they're told, oh, that's just going to be more expensive. And so you do, you sort of set yourself up to always be willing to pay more in order to pursue the things that align with your values and, you know, make a difference in a, you know, in a bigger way. 
but it's great that 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 nuss doesn't necessarily have to be the case in what's going to be probably one of the biggest loans that you ever take out in your life and uh yeah that's awesome so one of the biggest financial outlays you'll ever make in your life <laughs> now I'm going to um, dive right into financing around sites that may have specific challenges or constraints because there's actually been speculation around the bushfires that happened in, in 2019, 2020 across the, the last summer in Australia that insurance companies aren't going to spe- uh, are basically not going to insure specific postcodes. They're going to have whiteout zones or they're going to make the insurance of those areas cost prohibitive so people just won't be able to secure insurance. And so... In terms of also looking at finance, I wanted to say if there was similar things happening in terms of people wanting to buy or build in these specific areas that are bushfire prone and how you might have seen this potentially impact people's access to finance for either building or borrowing to purchase land in these areas and financing these riskier types of properties. Yep. Um, okay, so there's a couple of layers to that question, but um, ultimately the 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 biggest challenge or the number one challenge you face when you're obtaining finance for rebuilding or buying in a particular area is that you, no matter what that area is, um, you have to be able to insure the building as a condition of the loan with the bank. So if, if uh, insurance isn't at the top of your list and making sure that it's possible to insure, um, there's every chance that by the time you're ready and need the finance for settlement that you'll find the, you'll be, the, the bank will request the building insurance policy and uh, certificate of currency and the policy documents and all of a sudden the whole thing comes unstuck. So you must be able to insure the property and if you can't, then you're not going to be able to obtain finance unless the finance that you're after is only up to the value of the land itself and doesn't rely on the value of the building. So bushfire-prone areas um one element that makes sorry and the second element that makes things more challenging and actually it's not even specific to just bushfire areas is the construction and renovation side of things um which you know it's common a common belief that you've got the value of the land plus the cost of the project that equals the value of the house on completion um, and it isn't a linear, linear equation like that for banks. Um, so when you add in a bushfire-prone area's requirements as far as meeting building standards in order to get insurance, you add cost to the project that doesn't necessarily equate or translate to value of the completed project. And that's the biggest biggest challenge because ultimately the banks will only lend you up to a certain percentage of the value on completion of the property determined by the market and sales in the area of comparable properties. And then, you know, you add in another layer of that, which is another layer to that then, which is regional areas with limited sales and it's sort of a three-prong challenge, I guess, you know, Overall, what the banks do is they assess the entire project on every level, not just the value, but the client and their financial circumstances, you know, as a whole. Um, So that's all of those risks, not just the bushfire side of things. And if you tick boxes and you're strong on every other element, but then you need to borrow 95% 
for the project and you know that's even 95 percent of the bank's valuation it can still be a very strong application so there's you know there's the overall big picture that comes into the equation um, more so than just those initial three challenges but they're the big place to start is you know researching the market knowing what properties uh, that are comparable to what you're looking to have as a completed project are selling for currently so within the last six months yeah that's great advice and I think one of the you know, one of the key things that we're always learning whenever we sort of start to understand what are those early steps in renovating or building, that the conversation with a broker and understanding the financial kind of sums and how that all stacks up is so key to you protecting your risks in terms of moving forward. Often people won't have the conversation with a broker until they're at the point, the pointy end of needing to get the money in their hands. And then they might find out that those valuations don't stack and they're coming up short. And, and I see that happen a lot for people who might've bought the land say 12 months ago, and then are now trying to come to get the construction loan to build or, or renovate. And they found that the values of the land have decreased and they don't have as much equity in the land as they initially thought and they're short in cash. And so it is that case of, it's always wise, I suppose, to keep abreast of what values are doing in the area. And it is like you say, you know, the construction cost might be increased, but that doesn't necessarily correlate to an increase in valuation of the property because that's a market value process. So yeah, it's great to sort of understand those layers of the things to consider. And I, I do I do think it's great that you highlighted too that you may have a great case in, you know, three three of the criteria, but the fourth falls over or something like that it still can be a process that you can go through in terms of your feasibility as a, as a potential borrower to the bank. So that's right. And um, to your point, it literally, you know, trip, uh, means that the earlier you speak to your broker, the earlier you explain your full financial circumstances, the earlier they can give you the information you need to even potentially begin to mitigate the, the, the hurdles that you might face yourself before the time comes that you actually need the money. So yes, definitely. The broker is vital in at the beginning, not when it's crunch time and all of the emotions are behind it now because you know, it feels like it's, it's about to happen. Yeah. It's a, it's a journey and you've got to have the time and, and, and get that finance side of things if it's required because you can't do it without it <laughs> um, understood well early. Yeah, definitely. You must have very long-term relationships with people where you sort of see them and then it, you know, it might be the securing the property 12 months later and then it might be, you know, it can be this sort of very long love affair with a client to uh, get them to the end result. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I feel a little bit like I'm the doom and gloom conversation and, and, you know, I'm having a lot of these at the moment, but people who are coming to me early and, and first time home buyers you know, that generation who are a lot more, well, with with climate change being something that's so important to them compared to generations before them, coming to me early about these things. And, and you know, it's, it's in my nature to warn them from the start about all of the things that they have to put lots of time and effort into before they, before they, they can't turn back, you know, and before they've signed a contract or, or yeah, gone too far, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, that's fantastic. And I think, I mean, it's that forewarned as forearmed. And if you know the steps ahead, then it's much easier to make them without falling in the pitfalls and without getting yourself caught out. So it's great that that 
that you can help work with a broker to get that kind of advice and support through your journey. So yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Are there specifics to know when it comes to financing for bushfire prone areas in terms of understanding the different bowel ratings, the bushfire attack level ratings and what that might mean for how much money you'll, you'll be able to access or what deposit you'll have to save up in terms of the, I suppose, the, the difference in how the finance, the bank might see your risk levels and how much they're willing to, what percentage of the property they're willing to finance? Yeah, so the percentages of the property they're willing to finance is definitely crucial overall. Um, when you're in that zone of kind of 70 or 80% plus, you've got mortgage insurance costs that will be added to your loan and there has to be room under that uh, percentage that we're talking about for the cost of the insurance. So 90% is probably about, uh, I mean, you, you, uh, uh, about where the um, total cost of your project needs to be capped, um, including a contingency of unknown bucket of money for unexpected expenses. Um, because then when you add on the mortgage insurance, the total loan ends up being 92, 93, 94. 95 is the, the limit, generally speaking, for most banks, and many won't go that high. So you, you really begin to uh, reduce the different bank options you've got to choose from. So 90% is, is definitely the top end of the total project, including a contingency. And um, banks don't specifically talk in terms of BAL ratings directly. So, so you know, those, those kind of, um, so the scale of the BAL rating doesn't really matter to the bank uh, as such, but banks assess the overall risk of the property itself in the valuation. And that risk analysis is about seven or eight different uh, factors, risk factors, and generally, the risk factors. The scale is one to five. One is one is low risk. Five is high risk. And the more ones, twos, and threes you can have, and hopefully the majority of the risk factors are ones, twos, and threes. Then, if there are fours and fives in there that are related to bushfire, again, the bank's weighing up everything. So, if they can mitigate the bushfire risk by an insurance policy that covers the bushfire risk, then they're not going to be so hung up on those risk factors when all of the others are strong. So again, it comes back to that overall picture, definitely. When you're borrowing under 70% and, and up to 80%, you also take out a layer of the mortgage insurance company being involved and their whole new set of policies having to be met or their, their criteria having to be met. So the bank has to answer to the insurance company the mortgage insurance company who says, yep, we will insure this loan for you or no, we won't because of these things. So, and I, and I, you know, the, the, the policies of the insurers um, vary substantially. So um, again, another reason why you need to get your mortgage broker involved early. So you can find the bank that has the mortgage insurer that has the policies that work with your particular circumstances. So 
it's very complex. No, so well, that's really interesting to understand those kind of risk criteria and the different layers that the bank will assess that by. So, you know, if your property is a bowel flame zone, you know, some people may think that that means that it's going to be impossible to finance. But, but from the sounds of that, it sounds like it's actually just de- how it sits in the, all the risk factors that the bank is going to assess as part of all that combination. And if you're only borrowing, say, 70%, of the property's value and you've been able to, you know, calculate that once it's got a house on it built to flame zone, that you'll mitigate the risk and those types of things. Does that, am I understanding that that means that you actually stand a better chance? Absolutely. So you won't find it impossible just because you're a BAL, you know, the highest level of BAL risk rating. Everything else about your application will then be scrutinised. And if it's strong on all of those other levels, and we're talking about, you know, if you're, you're wanting to to build and in order to build, you need a 30-year loan term, but you're 65 years of age, the banks, it doesn't matter what the flame zone is, that's um, not a position that the bank wants to put anyone in financially. So everything else has to be considered. But if, if it's strong on in all of those other factors, the flame zone won't matter um, as long as it can be insured. Yeah, that's uh, it's quite interesting actually to sort of, remember that this is it's a it's a cocktail of different ingredients that it's not just okay a blanket statement of you've got a property with these zones on it it's going to be impossible it's like actually if you're committed it's a case I suppose of knowing that you can be financially sound in those other areas that you can have a sufficient deposit yeah you're following those avenues of I know as uh, being self-employed for so long you know the property purchasing that we've done we've always had to be geared at a much lower rate than if I was employed but that then has enabled us to be able to argue the point in terms of our ability to pay back the loan and those kinds of things and achieve the mortgage outcomes that we needed because yeah we just knew the rules we knew what we needed to do in terms of yeah Exactly. So um, again, that's what your broker's there for. And, you know, you go to your broker and the best thing you can do or your bank, if if that's how you do it, you go directly to your bank. You, You literally have to put all your cards on the table and you have to speak openly and honestly so that the banks can do the right thing by you, knowing the full picture and assess it thoroughly. So, you know, sometimes as a broker, I feel like I need to sort of poke and prod to get the full picture from people because they're nervous about saying, oh, you know, there's, there's this that's complex or there's this that's a bit tricky, but the more open and um, frank you can be about the full picture and answer all the questions that are thrown at you, the better chance the broker's got of, or, the, or you have of finding the right bank that is willing to um, help you out. Yeah. And I always found that a much easier conversation to have with a broker than with the bank manager, because the last thing you wanted to do was throw red flags at (laughs) whatever you were doing. So Exactly. And that's the thing. When you go to a bank manager of one bank who has one set of rules that he has to live by with every client, the moment you say, I don't know, it's a bushfire prone zone, the moment he says, sorry, we don't, we won't finance a project that's in a bushfire zone and you've completely ruled them out. So if you go to a broker and you tell them everything, they can just help you go straight to the right bank that they know accepts those tricky parts of your circumstances. So, yeah, that's fantastic advice, Amy. (laughs) 
Now, when we're looking at construction loans for new homes or for renovation projects, what do people need to consider when thinking about their finance? You've touched on some things already. Is there anything that might trip people up or that they might not be aware of in terms of understanding that construction loan process and how that might work for their project? Yeah. Okay. So uh, for me, there's, it, it comes down to one really key thing and that is lots and lots of research and being in, really informed on sales, the, the market that you're building and or renovating in and current information on comparable properties and understanding what comparable properties mean because unfortunately you know, building building to the highest standard of BAL level. Uh, again, you know, it comes back to that um, very first question. Doesn't necessarily translate to a property that's more highly valued by the bank with the method that they use for valuing properties. But in all honesty, in terms of when you put your property on the market for sale as well, you know, buyers don't necessarily, or well, they're not necessarily willing to pay as much as you did to get it to where it is when they're looking to buy it. And especially in the circumstances where somebody's experienced hardship, they have to sell their property for financial reasons and therefore need to sell it quickly, you're very unlikely to recover the costs. So, so that's the, the biggest one is understanding the market early before you've even begun your pro- project to understand what the value you're likely to be limited to is going to be despite what you believe your properties value that at the end. Um, So that's the big one. And when it comes to comparable, that's things like number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, floor size, block size, location, and quality of the work, which is all of these extra things you put the money into. They're they're important, but a home that's been constructed cheaply can look very nice and be sold quickly by the right agent with a wonderful wide lens camera and um, the gift of the gab. So it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't always translate. So lots and lots of research and I'm a spreadsheet queen. So you can only imagine when I've been out there looking to buy property or even dreaming about my own dream home eventually um, I've got a spreadsheet full of properties <laughs> and comparisons and, you know, it, it's not, not going to be necessarily your property that the bank's value will align to. It's going to be what's sold. So, yeah, that's the big one. Uh, what else? The other thing was just th- that contingency side of things because if, if, if you've watched an episode of Grand Designs, let alone every episode of Grand Designs, <laughs> even the best laid plans are very unlikely to be perfect despite lots and lots of research because there's just little things that you can't control and that come up. Um, There's things you can control too, (laughs) Um, but having spare money um, that is not, you know, assigned for the landscaping at the end or the fence or the little things that you think We'll, we'll fix those up with the with the spare money, the the contingency. You need the contingency to be for the unknown things, and and you've got to be really realistic about how big the contingency bucket needs to be. Um, and I would say it needs to be nothing less than sort of that ten to twenty percent realm. You would probably know better than me about that one. <laughs> And is there anything else that um, people need to consider as part of that? I know that one of the things that many people get surprised about and that 
uh, I often talk to them in terms of that actual processes that the bank needs to see their building contract yes. and be able to see what the payment, the progress claims are. And, you know, in the work that I do with helping members inside my um, online courses, it's really about saying to them, you need that bank to, you need your bank to look at what those progress claims are, what the definitions are, and so that you're all on the same page about what you expect to see finished on site at each of those progress claims so they don't get caught out, you know, with, say, lockup stage and the bank has one definition for what lockup stage means, but the builder has another definition mm. and it means that the progress claim, the builders, the, the bank refuses to pay the progress claim until the builder's done more work and the builder's saying, well, no, this is what the progress claim is for and I'm not going to do more work until I get paid for that one. Yeah. How, do, how do you navigate that process when somebody's about to go and get a construction loan and you know, that they're needing to sign a contract with a builder and sort of pulling all of that information together to give to the, to the bank to get certainty around that. Yeah, so there's, it's, it's twofold, I guess. The, the banks will, for the most part, only work with a project that, has a, that is a fixed price contract. Um, so if, if we're not talking about a fixed price contract, you, you're almost certainly going to find it very hard to get finance unless you've got lots and lots of equity. Um, so fixed price contract, your contingency, which is, you know, completely separate from the, the, the budget entirely that the bank's working with, if that's enough to cover every progress payment, then the main thing that the bank will want to see is that when they get to a particular point of a project, uh, sorry, a progress payment, is that, that that work has been done. If you pay for the work in advance with your contingency, then the bank will refund you for the work that's been done. So again, it comes back to that. If you've got the contingency, then if the bank says they won't release the money, uh, you can use your contingency to do that and then be refunded by the bank. So it completely mitigates that. But I've had so many conversation over, conversations over the years. I've been writing or helping people get home loans for sort of 15 years. The amount of times that I hear at the start of a project, a client say how much they've heard progress payments by the bank. You know, it's a nightmare and the banks just make it difficult. Ultimately, they, it's difficult because they don't want you to find yourself in a position where you've said, go ahead to the builder and he's done a whole bunch of work that shouldn't have been done yet, that he's spent money on when he shouldn't have because that wasn't part of the, the contract. So when the bank's being really nitpicky at the start before they release any money, it's to avoid you finding yourself in a tricky situation with the builder like that. So, yeah, I think... It, it might be tricky at the start, but if the bank's doing everything right, you won't find yourself in that position. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, you know, in my other business, Live Life Build, we talk to our builder members about the importance of actually having the homeowner present the contract to their lender and getting a letter from the lender that they've seen the contract, that they agree to the progress claims so that you've got that documentation up front. You know, particularly when you're working with a broker, sometimes some brokers don't manage the communication as well. And so yeah. that stuff can fall through the cracks, but it's just that case of understanding and getting all your ducks in a row right up front so that, you know, because obviously once construction 
starts happening, the last thing you want to experience is delays because somebody's not paying a, a, a progress claim or there's difficulty around getting money to where it needs to go. Yeah, That's when things cause real headaches. So to get, just to spend that, obviously that extra time in those upfront stages is so crucial to things then running smoothly. Um, That's right. And talking about the things that can go wrong at the start so that you can um, plan for them going wrong and, and be ready, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Did you find that helpful? I do hope so. Amy's just fantastic and, and she's going to be back in our next episode with more info on financing your new build or renovation. This is going to include talking about some of the many factors that banks and lenders consider uh, to determine your viability and the fact that banks can actually put black marks on postcodes or specific criteria that can be completely outside of your control. All of this is super helpful knowledge to have when you're seeking finance for your new home or renovation, especially if your site is challenging or it's in a bushfire prone area. Now, between us recording this interview and this podcast episode being published, Amy and her partner have actually welcomed their first bub, a little boy, into the world. So a huge congrats to them. Amy's actually back at work part-time, so you can contact her and I'll pop the links to Good Green Home Loans in the resources so you can check that out. Now, remember to head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild for all that we're sharing in the Rebuild and Build Better series and bookmark the link so that you can keep checking back as it grows as an online hub for anyone who's rebuilding after bushfires or wanting to build better and more resilient homes. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye. Bye.